football in one hand and the preacher should have a newspaper in the other. Have you heard that quote before? The Bible in one hand. It's a bit dated, isn't it? A little bit. Uh, a newspaper uh, in your hand. But you get the idea. He's basically saying that ministers, in fact, I think he's saying that all Christians... Yes, we've got to be conversant with God's words. But what's the emphasis he's given there? That Christians should be conversant with the prevailing thinking and the prevailing views of the society around. Christians should be conversant with the cultural milieu. Now, why is that important? Why should you and I have an idea of the thoughts and the thinking of society? What would you say to that? Probably a a couple of reasons, right? One... We have to have an understanding of society so that we can hold out the gospel, that we can better witness to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you agree? Certainly apologetically, you know, if we're going to engage our society with gospel, doesn't it help us to have some idea of how our society thinks? But there's another reason, and it's the one that I want you to think about. We need to consider our society, listen, in order to better fight our own sin. To think about our society in order to wrestle and fight and put to death our own sin. Now, do you see what I mean by that or not? Think about it if you're a Christian. You are called to live a life of holiness, are you not? A life pursuing righteousness. And, and I know as well as you do that the nature of sin doesn't change. But is this not true? That actually sometimes the temptations that are before us they do change dependent on the situation of our society. Isn't that right? Think about it. The enticements to sin, the types of pressures on us, they do change dependent on where we're living, what time we're living, you know, what society, what city we are in. I'll give you an example. Isn't it the case that the temptations before us would be different in wartime compared to the temptations and enticement if our society is going through an economic boom? Well, if that is... True, and if you were to analyze the society in which you live today, especially in regard to the Christian faith, if you open your newspaper in regard to the Christian faith, what would you see? How would you describe society? Would you agree with your minister that there's a certain degree of apathy today in our city towards the Christian faith? Would you agree with that? Come on, people. Not even a worldwide pandemic can arouse our city to an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. You with me? There is apathy today towards Jesus. Let's go a step further. Would you agree that there's a certain degree of antagonism towards biblical Christianity? There is, is there? Not certainly in particular factions of our society. Things have changed even in my lifetime. I talked to you before, didn't I, about the fact that when I grew up, the Christian was always portrayed as the backwards guy. The Christian and everything was the backwards guy. Hasn't that changed? Now the Christian is portrayed always as the bad guy. We are no longer just seen as naive. Biblical Christians, they are seen as what? They are seen as utterly intolerant. Well, given that that is the context in which we sit in London in 2020, I am sure you're going to agree that this portion of scripture that we're going to come to today is relevant and it's pertinent for you and I. Let me tell you why. In 1 Peter chapter 4, what Peter does, what he'll do, 
is not tell us just how we are to wrestle and deal with sin. He's going to show us how we can do that in a context that is hostile to the Christian faith. I will repeat it. Make sure you hear it. In 1 Peter 4, not only does he show us and instruct us how to, to put to death carnal desires, he instructs us how to do that in a context when the world is set against the people of God. And what he does, four things, four things. Peter will show us that we need, one, a resolve, two, a restraint, three, a resilience, and four, a reminder. I did that quickly. Those who are taking notes, I've got sore hands. Let me do it again for you. One, we need a resolve. If we are going to fight for purity in this context, a resolve. Two, a restraint. Three, a resilience. And four, we need a reminder from God. Okay. So are we ready to get into First Peter chapter 4, friends? We've got the Bible, our iPads, our physical copies of Scripture, open our phones, First Peter 4. Okay, let's think about the first one. You remember what it was? We need a resolve. Okay, now, at the risk of sounding like an old Scottish granny, over the last wee while, I've been gallivanting. That's a real old Scottish granny word, isn't it? I've been gallivanting all over the country. I've been preaching in different places, working in, in different places. So because it's been a while since you and I have been in First Peter, I think it would do us all good if we were just to look at the previous section and the context. So ha- have a, a look at it with me, that bit that we read in, at the end of chapter 3. D- does everybody remember at least what Peter was doing there? Do you remember he's coming to this section where he is instructing us about how to deal with opposition to the Christian faith? Isn't that it? He calls it suffering. There's the idea of persecution and opposition. You remember? Now, what has he said actually about Christ in verse 18? Chapter 3, verse 18. What has he said about our Savior? Do you know? I think what he's doing is he's actually spelling out that when we suffer, when we face opposition, it is in no way meritorious. Isn't that important for us to think through? Sometimes people have thought like that. But it's not the case at all. That when we endure opposition, it is no way that we are atoning for our sins. No, in verse 18, Peter's reminding you, Christ has done everything. It was his suffering that counts. It was his cross that has secured our salvation. Now, if you have been here for the sermon series, I wonder if you remember something else that Peter said elsewhere about Calvary. So he said there, the cross is sufficient. I wonder if you remember, that he's also said that the cross is, in a sense, exemplary. Friends, do we remember that? You know, the, 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 the idea that in the way that Christ approached the cross, he's provided us with a paradigm, a pattern, for how you and I are supposed to deal with opposite. You remember, do you remember it? I bet you could fill in the blank if I said 1 Peter 2.21, Christ suffered, leaving us an example, right? We're an exemplary work. Well, that is really important here in chapter 4 because what Peter does at this point in his book, he takes you and he points you to Christ Jesus. 
And he says that there is something in Christ's example that you need, you need, you need to adopt if you are going to live for him in a time of hostility. So what is it? Like, what do we need from Christ's example if we're going to live for him? I want to know. Don't you want to know? Look at verse 1. Read verse 1. He says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, so what's, what is it about his example? We are to our, arm ourselves with, what is it of his example? The same way of thinking? The same way of thinking as Christ in the face of opposition? Isn't that, what do you think about that? Is that a little bit surprising to us? Is it to send a little bit, I mean, you must have noticed he uses a military metaphor arm yourselves with us. So he's saying, we're going in. We are at war. We're going into battle. And what's the chief number one weapon that we're supposed to adopt and take to ourselves? Something to do with our minds and to do with our thinking? Does this sound weird to us? I think we have to understand that the idea here is not (laughs) about thinking certain thoughts when we're under fire. It's not that if we are pressurized by the world, think about a flower, you know, think about a beach. It's not that sort of idea. The idea here is much more about taking to ourselves a certain resolve. Is everyone hearing it? Let me spell it out. Peter's calling for, from you, a Christ-like commitment to enduring suffering. Do you hear it? Calling for from the church of God a Christ-like dedication to enduring suffering for the cause of Christ. You can almost see it, can't you? He points you to Jesus as Jesus approaches the cross. And what does he say? As just as Jesus set his face towards Calvary and he knew there'd be persecution, he knew there'd be opposition, but nothing would stop him. Isn't that right? Nothing. There was this steely determination to endure all of this persecution for his father's sake in glory. So Peter says to you and to me and to all of the church, the same must be true for us. We must take to ourselves a steely resolve to endure the opposition of the world. Here's the problem. I'm not sure we think this is important. I wonder if that crossed your mind. I wonder if it crossed your mind that this doesn't even seem interesting. Preacher preaches on raising godly kids. A preacher preaches on death. And maybe we'll sit and we'll listen and our ears will prick up. But the idea of the church having to prepare itself for battle, to have a resolve, to endure suffering... Is this interesting? Is this in any way important to us? I think you will see that it is if you read on in the verse. Please do that. Look at the end of verse 1. We are called to have this resolve. Why? Look at this. Whoever suffers has ceased from sin. (laughs) We all, I'm sure, are scratching our heads 
and say to Peter, ceasing from sin? I mean, I thought we could not cease from sin in this life. This is, of course, true. He's not talking about achieving any perfection. But I wonder if you do see what he's saying. We're asking Peter, why do we have to have this resolve? Why do we have to prepare? And he says to us, if we endure suffering for God's sake, we demonstrate to the world that we have broken with sin. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Why is this resolve so important for the church? If we endure suffering for Christ's sake, what do we do? We evidence to ourselves, yes, but we evidence to other people, even in London, our commitment to Christ if we go through suffering and endure it. We evidence the grace of God at work in our lives. We demonstrate, we display this dedication we have to killing sin. In fact, I think you in here... You recognize it. If you, you just think about it for a moment. I mean, what do you see when you, you look around and you see people, members of London City Presbyterian Church, and this is happening right now. What do you see when you notice some of them mistreated at work for their faith, yet you look on and you see them endure humbly? And they endure that, and they endure it graciously and in a godly way. What do you see in that person's life? You know, with me, you see God's grace at work in there, right? You see God's might and his power, or change the context entirely, right? What do you see in the hostile part of the world when there's a young Christian and they continue to profess the name of Jesus, even in the face of persecution from their whole community? You look on at the young Christian, what do you see? You see grace, You see, that is God there. That is God at work. That is why this resolve is so important. So I'll ask you this, and I'll ask you to think about it very carefully. When you consider the next chapter of your life, you do that, I'm sure. When you consider the next few months, next year of your life, what is your attitude, Christian? What is your mindset? Is it, do you give it any thought? I'm sure you do. Is it the case that you just assume that that is going to be plain sailing? And perhaps you need to listen to First Peter. You have to be ready for opposition. You need a resolve to endure that opposition. Why? That you, in your life, might display the grace of God to the glory of his great name. We need a resolve. Second thing Peter tells us is that we need restraint. At restraint. Uh, so, years ago, one of our elders, uh, Gabriel Amarim, who's on his phone, hopefully taking notes or reading the Bible and not texting somebody. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, Gabriel. Uh, but one of our elders, a few years ago, he preached a sermon here on a Sunday night on Psalm number one, many years ago. Um, the Psalm, the sermon sticks in my mind probably for a couple of reasons. One, Gabriel did a great job handling the text. Wonderful job. That's partly why it stuck in my mind. The second reason is quite simply a personal reason, and that is that I love that psalm. I wonder if you know it. Do you know Psalm number one? We will sing it later on. It's a psalm, marvelous psalm, beginning the Psalter. And a psalm that lays before us the two and the only two ways of living and the ways of life. So it's a psalm that talks about the way of the righteous on one hand, And then it's the psalm that talks about the way of the wicked, the path of the wicked, okay? Now, the reason I mention that to you is really simple, is because Peter, in his epistle, at this point, does something very, very similar to Psalm 1. Can I ask you to look at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3 to see it? 
Now, do you see what he does? He, he speaks about, at the end of verse 2, about this path of the righteous, of following God, of not embracing human passions. That's fine. That's great. But then look at verse 3. Do you see how he speaks about the Gentile, what the Gentiles want, the ungodly pagan life? Now, here's the reality. What Peter does is he linger, let's say he hovers for a little moment over that ungodly life. You see that? So this is what I want to do. I want to read to you the description of that ungodly pagan life. And what I want you to do is to consider what you notice about it. So is everyone with me? Get the idea? There's there's a vice list. It's very similar in Galatians and Romans. A vice list. Characteristics of ungodliness. Peter spells it out. I'm just going to read out the list. And I want you to think about what you notice from the text. All right? With me? Boys and girls can maybe do this as well. So listen carefully. You follow it along in verse 3 if you want. Here we go. So the Gentiles live, Peter says, in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Will I do it again? Let's do it quickly. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. What, what do you notice? Like, I think we, we, we surely notice a couple of things there, do we? Like one, with the exception of the last one that deals with idol worship, the rest of those are about sins of excess. Aren't they? I mean, you see the idea? It's about indulgence. It's about the pursuit of gratification. These are actually areas of where a lack of self-control leads into really harmful habits for a person. You notice that? It's about sins of desire, sins of excess. That's the first thing. The second thing I bet you notice is how familiar they seem to us. Because, yeah, you, you could say to me, well, that's, that sounds like it's describing the first century world and the Greco-Roman culture and passions and so forth. Yes, if you were to say that's absolutely true, but I would say back to you in a very strange way, does it not sound like it's summing up the sins of our fair city rather accurately? In a way that perhaps was not even true a hundred years ago. You think about life in London. It's not the case that so much of life is about the pursuit of excess and gratification. You think about it, you know, compared to 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, now, pornography, you know, everywhere, isn't it? And what about, like, the idea of, you know, like, Tinder dates and like a commonplace, acceptable part of life, you know, a one-night stand, or even this idea that a 10 p.m. curfew in a pub, 10 p.m. a curfew, is a disaster area. Like, do, do you see? Like, so much of the structure, so much of our lives are are set up for the pursuit of sinful indulgence, and because of that, because that's how we're saying, you as a Christian need to know what God says to you at the start of verse three. So, what does God say to His church? He's writing to Christians who have out of that situation, and Peter says this: It says, "The past suffices for those things." Like, do you hear? What scripture is saying to us? 
See, that stuff, those lists, that vice list, that has absolutely no part in the Christian experience and the Christian living. That belongs to yesteryear. The door to that has to have closed for Christians. The past suffices for that. So I will slow down, I will quiet down, and I'll ask you this. I mean, we we know, don't we, about four-letter words, right? The the idea of a four-letter swear word. I think perhaps out of a fear of legalism and out of a fear of sounding too simplistic, there is a four-letter word that has become a swear word in the life of the church. Quite simply, the word stop. Christian, stop. So I say to you, you read this vice list, is it too familiar as a Christian? What about sexual sin in your life? about an over-reliance even on alcohol indulging there stop or as Peter would say elsewhere abstain from the pleasures of the flesh we have to close the door on the old man the past suffices for these things So, a resolve and a restraint. Thirdly, a resilience. You're you're entirely free to disagree with me on this next thing I say. Um, Not on everything that that we say from the pulpit, but on this you're free to disagree with me. Uh, I think that when a person first comes to faith, when a person first comes to know Jesus Christ the Saviour, I think one of the first books that they should be pointed to in the Bible is the book of 1 Peter. I once did a sort of question and answer thing uh, after preaching in a, in a church elsewhere. And I was asked that very question, you know, you know, Andy, what books do you think? You know, I've just come to faith, just come to know Jesus. And what books of the Bible? And I think I said Mark's gospel and I think I said Romans. Go to Romans, study Romans. I would add now, First Peter. I wonder if you see why it's good for a new Christian. You know how it is, do you? Like so often a person comes to faith <laughs> and they view Christian living through tinted glasses. Definitely the case for me. Came to faith in Jesus like, yes, <laughs> it's going to be a breeze from now on. You know, I know Jesus. I am saved. God is with me. Life is going to be so simple. And what does First Peter do? First Peter corrects that rather naive attitude. Don't you think? I mean, even in this portion of scripture, imagine a new believer comes to it. What does that new believer learn? It learns what? There's going to be suffering, opposition, and you need to live a life of self-denial. Well, as Peter continues here, what he does is he builds on this theme of the challenges that you and I face as Christians. Let me be more precise, shall I? What Peter does is he shows you a consequence you're going to face if you live a life pursuing holiness. And it couldn't be any more serious, this consequence. I would ask you to look at verse 4 with me. So already seen the challenges. But what does he say? Peter says, even if you do this, like even if you avoid these, these, these characteristics and you seek to put to the sin to death, Look at this. Society, they are surprised when you don't join them in their flood of debauchery. So your holy living is going to shock your unbelieving neighbor. But what's the consequence? Read on. And they malign you. Isn't that quite something to think about? 
even if we're pursuing holiness, what is the inevitable consequence of a life of pursuing godliness? You're going to be insulted. You're going to have a flurry of abuse hurled at you, Christian friend. Now, I think the first thing we've got to do with that is just try and wrestle with why? Why is it that if I pursue godliness, I'm going to be maligned? Maybe you see the answer. Is it not that the Christian can appear judgmental? Is that fair? Like you think about tomorrow, if you're going to work tomorrow, or you're going to school tomorrow, or you're going to university. What very often happens? The unbelieving people in your life will boast about their immorality. Isn't that right? You know, you'll hear all about what they've been up to at the weekend and their drunkenness and their sexual exploits. You'll hear it all and don't you see what can happen? By simply standing back from that and abstaining from it, it challenges the unbeliever, doesn't it? You just simply abstain from that and you reveal you do not condone that sort of behavior. It can appear judgmental and it can lead to insult. And I think more than the reasons... It's the remedy Peter gives here that is critical. Because I don't want to insult you. I really don't. I don't want to insult you. I want you to try in your heart and forgive what I'm about to say to you. But I want to suggest that when it comes to this and Christian living, I want to suggest that we in the church are cowards. Please forgive me. I'm not saying you are cowards. More than anything, I'm saying when it comes to to standing for Christ. I am a coward. And if you agree with that, do you not see how that plays out? Like if we know that we're going to be maligned and insulted, if we pursue holiness, what is the temptation that we face? Come on, from the youngest believer in here to the oldest. If we're going to be insulted, if we live apart, what's the temptation? The temptation always is to go with the crowd. Isn't it? If we know we're going to be maligned, if we know we're going to face abuse, then, well, let's just go with the flow. And the beauty about Scripture is that Peter knows that's the temptation. So what does he say? Look in verse 5. Immediately to us, weak cowards, he reminds us that those people who are insulting us, he reminds us one day they are going to have to stand before Christ in judgment. Did you see what he's doing? Peter, they're setting everything for us in an eternal perspective, an eternal context. He is imploring us in that to stand fast against sin in our lives, regardless of the insult, regardless of the abuse. And then the last thing, a resolve, a restraint, a resilience, and then a reminder. I I personally haven't been in this text for a week I find it a really quite startling text. It's, it's a wake up to the Christian. What do you think? Is that splash of freezing cold water you have in your face first thing in the morning? It's that first cup of really strong coffee. You know, when you're, you're so tired and that first sip of coffee and suddenly clarity and focus come. If we were under the illusion that the Christian life is easy, you come to this portion of scripture and you learn that we are going to suffer our life is a life of self-denial and then be slandered. Okay. And so if you listen really carefully to the original context, if you listen carefully, maybe you can hear the criticism that the world at this point would have leveled against Peter's first readership. 
Now you think about when in time Peter's writing. So this is what, between 60 and 68 AD. So this is a time where the first New Testament Christians, if we'll allow that, they're beginning to die, aren't they? People are beginning to die. And so if you listen really carefully, can you hear what the word, the accusations and the criticisms of the world to Peter's readership? The world is saying, what is the advantage of the gospel? The world is saying, so you're telling me you're going to live a difficult life? You're going to suffer? You're going to have self-denial? You're going to be slandered? And then the world says to the church, at the end of all, you're going to die the same as everybody else? What is the advantage to all of this? What is the point, the world says to the church, of following Jesus Christ? And I genuinely fear that there are Christians in the room. And as Christians listening who are beginning to ask themselves, such as their, their spiritual fatigue, the same question. What really is the point of this? What is the point in following Christ? And so we close with this. I would ask you to look at the answer that Peter gives in verse 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached to even those who are, let's put in the word now, now dead, though judged in the flesh the way people are. So he's saying that though they die the same way that people die, what does he say? They might live in the spirit the way that God does. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yes, it's true that the believer and the unbeliever, we both die. Like, is this true? Of course, death is the great leveler. But, but what is he saying? What is ahead for the Christian? The truth that through the power of the gospel, the Christian lives on. The Christian gets to live like God. Better, the Christian gets to live with God. With God. Indeed, if you're really sharp this morning, if you really had that first blast of coffee, maybe you see the textual link that Peter draws from the end of the section to the beginning of the section. You'll see it if you look down. So look at verse 6. How does he speak about dying? We die in the flesh. In the flesh. How do we live? We live in the spirit. Look at chapter 3, verse 18, and what he says of Christ. He says the same thing of the Christian as of Christ. He has died in the flesh, risen in the Holy Spirit. Don't you see the answer? The world says, what's the advantage of the gospel? And I can stand and say back to the world the beautiful truth that as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, I know one day I too shall rise in that same form of resurrection. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century was raised to life. So it is true for all the people of God that because the sinless, perfect, matchless Son of God, because he suffered in the flesh, I know, you know, Christian friend, that death has no hold of you. Death has lost its sting eternally. Because of Jesus Christ, all in him will one day know the full reality of that eternal life that we taste even today. And so, I'll close, I want just a word to those who are not Christians. Um, I wonder if you reflect on the year 2020 if you're not a Christian. What has 2020 taught you? I would suggest that 2020 has taught you that life is short and life is fragile. Is that true? I don't think we even know 
how the coronavirus will affect us should we contract it. We don't even know. Such is the fragility of life. We don't even know if we are healthy right now. We don't even know if disease does not ravage our bodies as I stand here and speak to you. And if you are an unbeliever, I think there is one word, one solitary word in this text that should make you think. Because in verse 5, what does it say? Does it say that Christ is going to judge the living and the dead? It doesn't say that. It says that the Lord Jesus Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. What a thought that God Almighty is poised at this very moment. The God who will come as a thief in the night is ready to judge. And if you're not a Christian, there is only one way that you avoid condemnation and damnation on that day. And that is if you run and flee with all you have just now in this life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this if nothing else. He is the only one through and by his sufficient suffering, the only one who can deal with your guilt. He is the only one who can deal with your sin before God. Christ Jesus, because he suffered, he can reconcile you to his everlasting Father. He can give you peace. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Gracious God, we are conscious when we uh, read uh, this section of Scripture uh, how we give so little thought to the spiritual battle uh, that we are in, Lord God. We are so at ease and apathetic uh, towards our Christian experience, yet we are to have a resolve uh, for this warfare. We ask, God, that you would equip us for the fight, the fight against uh, wickedness uh, outside, but sin within. We are grateful to you, Lord God, for your great saving work. And we ask that you might open the eyes of the unbeliever, even at this very hour. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.